0: so it 's a good good week. I hope you 're um, learning a lot about practice about mind states and things like this that will serve you continue to serve you well in your practice uh, I just kind of wanted to tie it up a little bit tonight, mostly with practice stories. <laughs> often we learn the, the, the most from these kinds of things just to see how uh, things can be handled but just to start by saying that um, Really, I hope we're we very clear that the basis of practice is to do our level best to relax, to see what's happening, pay attention, look and see what's happening. And you begin to see what that requires in order to be able to pull that off. You've got to have a tremendous amount of impartiality about what you see. And that's a process in itself, isn't it? We don't just jump into practice with that degree of impartiality in many ways that's what gets cultivated um, through the years of practice and it's in many ways it's a it's more of a player than even the relaxation and the attending you know something has to, uh, let go of having ideas about the way that things are and the way they should be uh, in order for us to just to get in there and look and, and see exactly how they are. So this is the rule, this is the, bo- the bottom line, the whole basis of practice. And, and learning about mind states is just learning, it's just trying to sort things out, just to get in there and sort things out. And we need to do that in a way consistently that holds no biases. We'll learn more about the sanya kanda, but the, this is the, the tendency to hold biases in the mind, views and ideas, and the level of attachment to that is deadly. <laughs> it's that uh, we have a high degree of attachment to views and ideas, and uh, do it uh, tremendously. So uh, you know, you have to work through that and, and have have no view, no expectation uh, about what we see. Really, to see things impartially, and one of the monks put it this way, and I thought this was funny coming from a monk because they don't uh, they don't dance, but uh, they say, he said that he he handles the the um, mind states uh, like they were dance partners, and he just tries to hold them, and you know you you find out about your partner when you do that, you find out. They go this way, they go that way, and there's no right way to go. You sort of just learn how to maneuver, how this this particular partner operates, and and, uh, try to overcome any ideas or views or biases about how it should be. It's just, uh, and try to get to the way that it is right now. This is how it is right now, and that's the objective. Um, And and then waking up then becomes a case of uh, just noticing what's happening I'm getting a good clean hit, a good direct experience of what's happening, and learning from that. Just daring to keep it that clean, and let the uh, data uh, reveal to you (laughs) what you need to know. And and everything that needs to transpire um, comes out of that enterprise. You know, and I don't know about you, but it, it took me a long time to even begin to get this, let alone to actually operate at it very much. There's a, there's a high degree of trust in process that has to be developed in order for the uh, practice to uh, succeed, in a way. And you, you know, uh, what, what has to die in the uh, uh, long run, then, is this sense of um, uh, the person who is doing the practice. You know it, it, that tendency is so strong. No matter what's going on, That because self-view is strong, there's a sense that something shouldn't be the way that it is. Uh, I shouldn't be doing the way that what I'm doing. Something else needs to be happening. You know, and it's incessant, isn't it? Uh, that is one of the biggest obstacles uh, for, the, for us in the early years of practice. But the, you have to trust practice, because if we, if we don't, then we interrupt the flow. And there's a, there's a way that it unfolds quite naturally and, and quite organically. And the other thing is that you can actually misread things. And I find this to be particularly true with the hindrances, that you know when you get these lists like the five hindrances, you know, or the ten fetters, or all these nasty lists of filthy <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, mind states, you know, the 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 way that they get picked up in the mind is that they have to be gotten rid of. And we were doing that for a long time before we heard about the hindrances, and now basically you hear about the hindrances, and uh, it can manifest as just a new way to do it, new objects to pounce on, new ways not to be, things that I have to do to clean up my act, smack myself around, and get rid of these things, you know? And it can be a a very strong tendency. Uh, And... um, it can totally interfere <laughs> with what actually needs to transpire in order for these uh, hindrances to be uh, uprooted. Uh, we have to be able to stand back and, and feel them and uh, know, like, like the Ajahn said, how, you know, dance with them, see how they maneuver and learn from the direct experience so that this mind can, learn, can get it that this serves us or it doesn't serve us. You know and that's that's what it really comes down to. Uh, and takes as I said, it takes time. We have to learn to give the, the mind time to, to figure out what's going on. Cause, I mean and I don't want to discount it. It may be that we're caught in a mental hindrance. That may be the case uh, and, and if, if that is the case, then you want to know the tools you want to know how to deal. With things, and you have you hopefully you're developing your tool belt and your resources and the, the approaches that you find that are most helpful for you uh, in dealing with something that's really persnickety. But it, it, it may be that we're too quick to call things hindrances that aren't full blown hindrances, you know, that they're, they're just like I, I began to, to see a lot of the karmic patterns, almost like their personality traits. You know, thing, we, we pounce hard on ways that we are, that it's, it's okay. You know, it's not this horrible, difficult state that's got to be smacked around and gotten rid of, you know? Uh, and I, started, I actually gave them a name. I started to call them that <coughs> uh, convoluted constellations of confusion, <laughs> you know? There's like these tangles, and you know, you come up against them, and you've got to be willing to hang in there and hold them long enough to see um, what's, under, what's going on in there. And there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm sure you've seen many times where uh, some of the things that seem like blocks might actually be, uh, have, have a lot of very skillful states in them, some beautiful stuff, you know, and you end up pushing it all away because uh, you, you, you're uh, reacting to the difficult stuff that's in it. So we we just want to stay open and look as impartially as we can and and just learn about these things and learn about working with these states. So I just have some practice stories of my own and some other people's that uh, I just picked one for each of the hindrances to kind of look at ways that we might um, work with these and and see some of the errors in perspective that we make along the way. There's no particular order to this. Uh, Uh, Some of the uh, stories uh, show where there really are hindrances and you need to get in there and do something. Others are just kind of uncovering how the whole thing is happening. Uh, And some just talking about the hindrance itself. So I hope some of it's uh, helpful to you. Um, So the first one, sense desire. This was a biggie for me uh, and uh, in my own practice. Uh, I learned a lot about it when I went on my first um, three-month retreat. And this was very pretty early on in my practice, um, where um, I had just been uh, meditating I'd just done my first retreat like a year and a half earlier. and uh, so meditating a little, a little bit and uh, um, not with much guidance, however, you know, just uh, going to a, a few retreats here and there over the course of that time, and then plunging into a three-month retreat. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know about too much about mind states and all at that time uh, either. Uh, but anyway, while we're getting, you know how it is the first night of the three-month retreat, people are all coming in from all over the world, and you, you get to know each other. You see some people you know, and I was surprised to run into a woman I know from North Carolina, who's a potter friend of mine, and she was going to be sitting in the retreat, who knew? Didn't even know she was into it, And. um she had brought with her a bunch of her what she calls her mistakes. You know, she was she was a fabulous potter, and she did a lot of these beautiful calligraphies on the uh, uh, pieces that she made. And this was back at the time when IMS had um, uh, not not you know how now all the dishes are homogenized. You know, it's all the same thing. <laughs> well, IMS used to have for those of you who've been going a long time. Uh, cups and bowls and platters and all kinds of things from all over, you know, and people would come to the retreat center with bags of cups, you know, from their cupboards or from the thrift stores and what have you and put them out on the shelves and every now and then the staff would have to actually go through them because some of them were pretty nasty, you know, <laughs> either they had Uh, statements on them that offended people or you know (laughs) or uh, they were just in such bad shape you know (laughs) you could throw somebody into a real tizzy on a three-month retreat with a a mug that had some nasty thing on it you know (laughs) so uh, but anyway so here uh, when I saw that she had brought a few of her cups and bowls I went oh this is great you know, I'm going to enjoy my meal so much during this retreat because I'll get Selden's cups and bowls. You know, and I'll be, I'll be able to uh, enjoy it. And so I, I, got, I got real excited about it. And then you know, mealtime comes around, and uh, I would look for them, and oh, you know, often find them, and uh, be able to enjoy my meal on, on them. And then, but sometimes. Um, I wouldn't get there fast enough, and somebody else would get them. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and and I, I, I would get very irritated, and I'd even start to look around the room. You're not supposed to put your, you know, look up, you're not supposed to look around. But I'd sort of look around the room sometimes to see who got them, <laughs> so I could hate them. You know, <laughs> And, and I, I went on like this for quite a long time. Um, this went on for weeks, just uh, wanting the cups and bowls. Feeling like uh, my happiness depended on getting them, you know and, and if, if I did, then the meal would go well, and if I didn't, then I'd be grumpy and pissed off, you know. Uh, but then some funny things began to happen where um, some days um, I might get them, and then I'd sit next to somebody. like I remember one time I sat next to this woman who made disgusting noises when she ate you know so she was like and it, it it was like it was like ruining my meal you know and i had so i had i got my cup and bowl but i still wasn't happy you know? and, and and so here the you know the mind is taking in this data it doesn't you know i am still very much in it believe me I mean, this is in hindsight i could see what was happening but while it was happening very much in it you know, uh, and so uh, uh, starting to break apart this uh, notion that my happiness depends on getting what I want. You know, but still it went on, and I, uh, I so much wanted those cups and bowls. I even went through a period where uh, I changed my seat in the hall so that at the sitting before the meal I'd be closer to the door, <laughs> <laughs> and I could get there faster. Or, I even sometimes did walking meditation in the upper walking room, so that when the bell rang for the meal, I'd be one of the first ones in line. And this this way I could secure um, my happiness. Yeah, (laughs) It's quite amazing, quite amazing. But then, as you do, and then this is what we can do with these things like that. You start to see it, 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 it you know, over time, because the mind is getting more still. You're um, more objective about everything. You're able to see uh, what's going on a little bit more precisely. And as I began to to see what I was doing and the torment of it, you know, it, it, I, I, I would I would just cry like I maybe coming through the. Walking the, the uh, walking room and then the coat room, and making that turn in front of the uh, message board where I, the, the, the stacks of dishes are in sight. You know? <laughs> They're just starting to come into view. And I, I can remember standing there uh, some morning, some days, and just going, Oh no, it's gonna start again. All the wanting is gonna start. Just, just from seeing them, I knew it was going to start coming up, and I didn't want to go through it. You know, I didn't want to experience that wanting, and so then I do what we often do. Uh, I, I started to pounce on it and say, "No, you know," and call myself names. You know, you're just a greedy piggy thing. I can't believe that you, 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 you're so filled with uh, this kind of wanting. You know. And so then I would make myself take um, the ugly ones. I went, through a, I went through a stage where, I mean, there were, and there were some really ugly ones, like, <laughs> there were these dishes that were like um, turquoise and olive green, <laughs> you know. And, and no matter what you put on them, it was very unappetizing, you know. You could have the best meal and it, d- bleh, because it, it just looked so unappetizing on this, cl- on this bowl, you know, or plate. Or I'd look for the forks with the bent prongs and things like this. And I was like, that was my response. Yeah? yeah and You, you can see this, I'm sure you could relate in some way. Uh, you know, smack yourself. No, you can't have it. You can't do it. You're going to take the ugliest, the oldest, the most chipped, whatever, and and you're gonna like it, you know. <laughs> you're gonna enjoy this meal, whether you like it or not, you know. And of course, that doesn't work. Doesn't. It it's just. It's, now. I'm even more tormented. It's more miserable, looking less forward to mealtime than, than than anything, anything before this point, you know. But then this is going on over a period of weeks, right? You know how it, it, it takes time to, <laughs> <laughs> to see through these things, <laughs> to open up the heart to what's actually going on, you know? And then finally, I mean, after a while you just get sick of it, and you just, maybe maybe you drop it, you don't even notice. Like there, there were days I, I, I began to realize that some days I would be eating my meal, and I realized I didn't think about the cups and bowls, I didn't, go through all this dance about which ones to get or any of that uh, just uh, going through the eating of the meal and then as the mind settled down more and more you know and, and uh, maybe uh, seeing that uh, arising coming up occasionally um, my I began to see that w- what was preceding it you know what's what's going on here how, how is this happening the mind it stops becoming so obsessed with the content of it, the object itself, and starts to look at how it's happening, doesn't it? And this can take some time, depending on how entrenched the pattern is. you know. But eventually, um, that's what my mind began to do. And I could uh, become sensitized to the fact that in that moment, when I looked at Selden's cups and bowls, I had this... You know, it was it's just it, they gave me so much pleasure. They were so beautiful. She was quite, a, <coughs> quite an artist. You know, I would take a houseful of her mistakes. You know, they were really, really beautiful. And so, um, then uh, just noticing that, I had this insight one day, just be, like being right there when that was happening, and it was like, "Oh, you like pretty things." <laughs> that's, that's how the whole thing started You know, you just didn't see it that's how, that's how you got tangled in this whole mess You didn't see that that's what started the whole thing And, and I, I just remember sitting back and thinking Well, that's okay <laughs> You know, I'm an appreciator I'm an appreciator of beautiful things and the world needs appreciators, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the trick is knowing, seeing it as such and letting it be that and not having it um, propel us into the, become the kickoff point for greed, hatred, and delusion, you know, which it can if we don't see it. You know, so, so slowly just uh, getting uh, attuned in this way and seeing what was actually going on uh, much more precisely. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's, my mind started to settle. And one of the things that I noticed, uh, it was a kind of a side effect of this, which I was totally unexpected. Um, but it was that um, I began to notice uh, ple- pleasure a lot more. There's a lot of pleasure throughout the course of the day. But the mind that is habituated to uh, gratifying itself with pleasant things never sees the pleasure. <laughs> it goes right to grabbing, you know, it goes right to the object. Uh, and, and so, this settling back as it transpired um, really uh, affected a, a kind of a happiness in the heart. Uh, things around the retreat center were triggering delight, you know, beautiful objects. Uh, funny things that people might have been doing, things like this. And, and I remember telling one of the monks about it um, after, that, after that retreat, and well, actually it was a lot, lot later, and he, he actually pointed out something that I hadn't even thought about at that time. He said that, you know, it, it, it's, um, you, you really need to be attuned to, to pleasure and to the joy that it brings that it's actually, this is actually a key player in um, uh, stimulating and uh, developing the factors of awakening. (laughs) I never thought of it that way. But that, he says, if you can't see the pleasure in simple worldly objects, how are you going to see it when it's transcendent? So that was really, really helpful and and a very good insight for me. So then aversion. you know, um, this comes from a friend of a very good Dhamma buddy of mine and um, he's, he, he was telling me the story about, um, he had uh, maintained a daily practice, a, a very strong daily practice for like uh, 15 years and then one day he just stopped sitting, just like that. He just He said, I left my shrine up, I left my mat and my cushion and every day I would walk by it and I would go, hmm. You know, and I wouldn't sit. Uh, and he said, but he was mature enough in practice to uh, to real, to say, well, this is interesting. <laughs> what's this all about? You know, I wonder what's going on here, and not to be too troubled by it, but just to kind of give that uh, state a little more slack. You know, just let it let it play itself out, and and do his level best to keep watching it. And uh, it went on for nine months, uh, and he said during that time he began to notice how at work he was um, getting um, grumpier. He was more irritated with things that people were doing, or that um, they they often had the the water cooler uh, gossip uh, just about every day. You know, it was in the in the break room, and he would be more easily pulled in you know, it began to become attuned to the, uh, how sickening that felt uh, to, to be doing that. Um, and and uh, he said he was having a harder time just period throughout the course of the day, staying focused on his work, let alone um, on, on practice. And, and so slowly, it was interesting, he said slowly he was learning from his own direct experience um, the consequences of not having a daily sitting practice. And um, uh, and from that sprang this um, arising. After, after about nine months, like I said, it took that long for him to just keep watching it and allowing it, trying not to have any view about it, not to hate himself for the fact that he wasn't sitting, but just to hold it as openly and as cleanly as he could, and, and to keep paying attention to the consequences, to let that into the heart, and don't do that, you, you see, you know, see, this is, this is what happens when you don't sit. You know, just, just leave that all by the wayside as well. And, and uh, then one day um, he got up and he sat. <laughs> and he said it was the weirdest thing. And he wanted to talk about it, so we talked about it. We said, oh, we, and uncovered some of the things that were going on during that time. And he was in therapy, he was coming from a very regimented family life. Um, very, a lot of rewards and punishments kind of things and a lot of shoulds in his life and he had been working through um, the uh, anxiety that he felt around all those shoulds in his youth uh, through the therapeutic environment and uh, he suspects, he says he still to this day doesn't know what was going on there because these things are they're, they're, they're happening, unfolding cle- our, our act is getting cleaned up on these subterranean levels you know, you, you sort of it doesn't. It's not like you take it all in fully consciously. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But the but shifts do take place, and uh, he said he suspect that um, uh, he, the the practice was real, had become one of those shoulds. You know, and that and that really um, what he the, the reasons why he was sitting were from a very superficial level. You know, he came to practice with all the good reasons, but also there were these shoulds in there. Okay, now, now, you've got, now you're a meditator, now you've got to sit. You know, and you should do that. And then, as a result of that, you, you end up practicing for very superficial reasons. You know, uh, this, is, this is not the, the coming from direct experience, having seen the great value, of the meditation practice and uh, having it come from very deep within uh, that one wants to sit, one wants to sit. He said it it got to where it felt like the meditation cushion had like a magnet in it. It just would start to pull him, you know? Uh, And and, uh, just Mm -hmm. from allowing um, this whole process to transpire, And, you know, I mentioned last night that what goes on at the, or the other night, what goes on at the first stage of awakening, and uh, how we have to um, fine-tune our understanding of the meditation practice and not be attached to it for the wrong reasons, you know? Not be doing it for superficial reasons. And I think this was a lot of what he was going through. And now, uh, and then it, it dropped him down into a place that was so, deeply committed and so bonded in a way <laughs> to his uh, mat and cushion as he put it you know. and I thought that was a really good story if he had been averse which he was, he's a very aversive type um, if he had given in to aversive thinking in when he first stopped sitting he would have cracked the whip and made himself do it and persisted in doing it for these superficial reasons and not learn this um, very important uh, lesson not deepening not he wouldn't have deepened his reasons his understanding of meditation and his reasons for doing it so it's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> you, know, you really have to be careful when you look at these states so here's one on sloth and torpor too <coughs> this uh, transpired one One winter, um, when uh, uh, I sort of had looked at sloth and torpor in a new way, Um, for many years I thought I had a real issue with sloth and torpor, you know, and and I would really um, force the issue when I saw myself in these states. But this this, uh, particular um, uh, episode helped me to see through a lot of this stuff. Um, it, it came in the in the fall one year, but earlier that year, in the spring, my mother had died. And for the last six months of her life, I was the primary caretaker for her. And yeah, I'm sure if you've ever done this, you know it, it takes a lot out of you. And um, uh, I had to hit the ground running after it because I hadn't worked that whole time. And so uh, I went right to work. and did a bunch for several months and then um, w- saved some money and I thought okay that's it you know you you haven't processed what happened very well yeah and you need to just uh, sit with the grief and sit with uh this experience and uh, this loss and um so I decided to rent a place down the beach for a few months and and just um do that you know that was my intention initially <laughs> uh and then, but then as the time approached, these, um, all these agendas started coming up in my mind. Okay, you can go to the beach, but you have to do something. You know, you have to have a project while you're there. You know, you've <coughs> got to write this and look at that and make this and th- these kinds of um, things. So I gathered all of the tools that I need for these various projects and carted them along with me to, to this apartment. And uh, and then I got there and I didn't do any of it. Yeah, I, I just had to. Uh, I just couldn't get up the momentum. I couldn't couldn't get going on at all. And right away the mind is going like, "You lazy thing! You know, come on! You know, you're not. What are you going to do? You're going to sit here for a couple of months and do nothing? You know, mm-hmm. you're just going to uh, waste away your time like this." And uh, I've tried to force myself to, to do these projects, you know? And it, it was it was amazing, because uh, I, uh, I wouldn't yield to that. It was uncanny, because usually I do. <laughs> you know, the whip starts getting cracked, then you, you stand up and you uh, shape up, you know? You get yourself together and you do what needs to be done. That's the kind of person I had been. You know, the, the, the kind of person who sort of defines what kind of day you had based on what you did, you know, <laughs> based on what you accomplished. You know, if people ask you who you are, you give them your job title, you know, that kind of thing. That That's the way it had been. But um, it didn't, it wasn't going in that direction this time. It was fascinating. It started to uh, really get my attention. And as I looked into what the heck was going mm. on, I began to realize that... Um, something was dying in me and, and I think it happens um, when you care maybe even when you care for the dying but you know if you have a lot of compulsions if you have a lot of ideas about how things should go <laughs> you know they're gonna it's going to really take a beating uh, when you go through this process, like a birth or a death you know you can't you can't manage the dying process, you can't control it, you know and uh, it, it was particularly brutal for me when I saw at one point that I was actually uh, pissed off with my mom because of the way she was dying I wanted her to die, I wanted her to be more courageous she wasn't brave at all, she was really crumbling under it and uh, having what they call a bad death, you know and then when I saw myself doing that <coughs> Uh, I really uh woke up you know and and snapped out of it and uh tried and and got more fully with the process for the last several months and just tried to um open open to it and what what happens with these kinds of experiences in life is that the the old ways, the patterns that we have take a real beating you know and um for me. Uh, this uh, compulsion, this driven quality, this bit that has to always be on top of things, manage, control, direct the course of of whatever activity. Um, It it couldn't uh, hold up. (laughs) It has to yield, you know. And and it, it felt to me, as I investigated what was going on for me at the beach, that um, what I was perceiving as sloth and torpor was actually just the relinquishing, that the saying no to compulsion, mm-hmm. and no to obsession, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not going to go that way anymore. I can't. It's uh, it's too painful. Yeah. And so you can, it, 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 it was interesting to me to to see how you can misread things. You know, you can misunderstand. And fortunately I was at one of my favorite places, by the sea, and I would use the sea to help open my mind. You know, I'd look out at the horizon, and uh, just that sense of unbelievable space. And just that's how I meditated with I just tried to bring that space into the mind, and... Uh, let the whole mind expand and and hold not only the conditions of my life, the situations in my life but the patterns of my mind, my karma my patterns and, and just try to um, uh, yield if you will <laughs> see it and allow this kind of thing to be and and so from this new vantage point um, the the, the self critical stuff and the the judging and the uh, as I said, the compulsion it, it just, it, it, has to go, it has to fall away so, so, you know, we try different things don't we and interesting uh, when, I, when I looked at it in this way I also looked at the, the energy that I actually had and it was fascinating to discover that um, I had a lot of energy <laughs> you know, there was a, the, I was not slothful at all. It was, it was not, I was not sluggish at all. It was, so what I was looking at wasn't, wasn't a hindrance. But if I had called it one, if I had decided it was, again, I would have cracked the whip and uh, would have missed uh, this kind of uh, um, insight, this kind of looking. So with uh, restlessness and worry, this is an interesting one. I mean there, there's a host of things that we worry about and become restless about. And, and uh, much of the time it is just restlessness and worry. Uh, you know it's born out of largely not accepting things the, the way that they are, or, or trying to make things uh, be stable, that aren't stable, trying to make things certain, that aren't certain, you know. And i know i want it to be this way trying to uh, make dukkha not be dukkha you know uh, this is this is the classic um, foundation for restlessness but sometimes um things are precarious and things are off and what presents as restless agitation can be uh, sort of like the unconscious mind throwing up a signal you know Pay attention here. Something's off. Something's not right. You know, uh, and and we've got to be able to discern that uh, as, as distinct from something that's a mental hindrance and an obstacle. You know, one one good example that uh, I'll never forget was when I was on staff at IMS and um, these, the whole gang had come in for the three month retreat, and I was standing in the front foyer and this woman um, was talking to one of the staff people. And she was a wreck. And she said, uh, I think I left the gas on in my house. I think I left the gas on. I think I left the gas on. And, and she says, oh, why am I so restless? I need to stop being restless. And the staff person looked at her and said, well, maybe you did. Yeah. Maybe you did leave it on. What can we do? Who can we call? Yeah? And so she took her into the office, and she uh, had a, called a neighbor who had the key, and, was able to go in and, and see uh, that everything was alright and report back to her. You know, but this kind of um, uh, stirring, she was ready to call it a hindrance and not do what needed to be done. But granted, it was good that the, uh, the house wasn't about to blow up, but, uh, you know, she didn't know that. She didn't know for sure. And, uh, you know, a friend told me one time about um, a person at, at work that made him really anxious. and. Uh, he said, um, he, now he was the boss, my friend was the boss, and he said, I don't know what it is about this guy, but every time I get around him, I get really nervous and anxious. And, and so we talked about it a bit. He we said, well, what's, what's going on? And what we were able to uncover is that um, this fellow was doing some things in the work environment that were not ethical. Mm-hmm. And um, my friend was the boss. <laughs> <laughs> and it was his job to clean this up to address this kind of thing, and he didn't want to and he would he went through all this stuff like resenting the guy, how dare he put me in a situation where I have to call him to task? you know he should be more mature uh why do I have to be the one all this kind of stuff and so every time he got around the guy, he got uh, nervous and he got anxious and restless, and he said well this is this is uh not some kind of misplaced anxiety, you know? This, you're picking up on um, on skillful behavior and the anxiety that you feel is because these things are difficult, you know? It, it, it's it, This is some of the dukkha of life, you know? But, but it's just the dukkha of life, you know? And, and uh, the agitation that we feel around that might be a very good signal for us to, you know, Uh, turn towards it and look at what's going on instead of um, trying to overcome uh, what is actually a natural and organic and very useful response to something that is off, something that needs to be addressed, right? So just to to take care and not be, be too quick to call things hindrances. You know, not everything that makes us feel anxious is restless agitation. Uh, it can be uh, something that actually needs to be addressed. So, but seeing in this way uh, requires some kind of discernment. You know, you can't be too quick to call anxiety a hindrance. So, doubt is an interesting one, um, and um, in a way, um, doubt is a form of aversion. Or anxiety to not uh, in relationship to not knowing, and what we call skeptical doubt, the hindrance of doubt, is when it sort of turns back on itself. You know, where you think there's something wrong with you, or something wrong with the system, or uh, a teaching, or something like that, because you don't understand it. <laughs> you don't know. You don't. You don't know, and can't open to not knowing. Can't be comfortable and careful around a state that is like so ripe with possibilities, because if we can just open to this experience of not knowing. I was talking about this one time with uh, one of the nuns, and she gave me a tape uh, from Pema Chodron, who talks about this a lot, and um, she may have written about it too in some of her books, I'm not sure, but this was just from a talk that I listened to. But she she refers to this as... um, Uh, she encourages us to recognize that in the process of uh, waking up in the the unfolding of this whole process that uh, there's a long time where we're in a place that is no longer comfortable with um, the old ways no longer comfortable with samsara and yet not fully embedded in or comfortable with the new ways, the Dhamma. And so some of, sometimes it, it makes us uncomfortable with certain people in our life, with certain situations in our lives, and we haven't embraced a whole new community. It, it's an awkward place. She calls it the in-between place. It, it's like things are changing. Things are tra- being tra- transformed through this process of awakening. And in a way, and this is my thought on it. I mean, if you just look at that, you you have to know that this process of waking up is not Mm. going to be an entirely pleasant experience all the time. There's going to be times when it's uh, painful and awkward and and difficult. And and uh, she encourages Mm. us to really be attuned to this place, because actually, it's it's not only something you should get get not uh, you should not get away from, you should stay with it. You know, because right here, it's actually right where you want to be in practice. She even she says it's so ripe with opportunity and potential that you might even call it the awakened mind <laughs> itself, you know? Because it's, you're vibrant, you're alert, you're interested. But you have to be willing to um, inhale and exhale around not knowing. Around uncertainty, around uh, th- this kind of thing, you know, where we we don't know what's going on, and this is true whether it's trying to understand Dhamma trying to understand our karmic our karmic pattern, trying to understand somebody else's karmic patterns, you know, trying to find ways to get along. We have to be able be willing to hold in the most open-hearted uh, way possible this. Um, a- agitated uh, position, uh, experience of of not knowing, and what what we're rubbing up against really is the the truth of impermanence and uncertainty. You know, and and the unawakened mind does not like that. Uh, the sense of self does not like that. <laughs> uh, you know, the mind that doesn't get dukkha does not like that. <laughs> It wants things to be comfortable, it wants things to be certain and clear, it wants things to be under our control. And yet, um, they aren't. They never have been, never will be. (laughs) You know, that's the grand delusion, which is a whole other matter. But um, the the willingness to uh, at least uh, entertain the the possibility that um, there's much more to be learned by uh, opening to all of this vague uncertainty, than from um, doing something uh, to cure it, <laughs> doing something to overcome it. You know, she she said it was like a um, a baby that's about to be born or a bubble that's about to pop. You know, I like those images. You know, there's 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 a ripeness. If we just recognize the way that. Uh, doubt works and don't, don't give in to it stay with the not knowing uh, then the, the potential for understanding is, is at its peak really uh, when when we learn how to rest in that place so you know, I, I, I see so much of the practice as a, very much an invitation to rest in that you know, don't you? It's like, okay I have no idea why I am the way I am. I have no idea why I keep behaving in the way that I behave. You know, I have no idea why they keep behaving in the way that they behave. But I, I'm willing to hang in here and uh, see it through. You know, try to uncover this. And just as an idea, that might strike terror in the heart. You know, it's like, ah, <laughs> I don't want to do that. But, but as an experience, it's, it's just so... Exciting. You know, it's the place where Dhamma practice gets really, really interesting. When we make peace with not knowing. You know, because then the mind is like it's so consistently and automatically uh, not having an opinion or view about what just happened and uh, turning towards it. And just going in. It's like you just dive in the deep end. Uh, over and over and over again, until we see and understand uh, what's going on, particularly with our karma, our karmic patterns. So what happens when we uh, allow uh, this not knowing just uh, to be there, uh, the mind uh, has this kind of intelligence, and it begins to contemplate naturally. You know, and I'm sure you've seen this. I don't know about you, but I've just really learned to trust it. I can't explain it, but this human mind um, is quite naturally interested. <laughs> you just got to get the muck out of the way that keeps challenging the, uh, challenging something that's difficult, you know, uh, it, it, so that it can get a good, clean look at what's going on. And if you if you, we surrender, then I find at least through the years that you either find an answer, you, you either get to a place of understanding about whatever it is that's up, uh, or you just learn to relax with not knowing. so you, you can't lose you know? <laughs> they're both good outcomes uh, if we just have the courage to stay there. So, you know, just looking at the hindrances, we'll look at them more wholeheartedly tomorrow. Andy really unpacks them with the Pali and really helps us to see what uh, we're talking about here. Uh, And uh, the way the Buddha is talking about them, these are things that block energy. They get in the way, they uh, obstruct our ability to see clearly, to focus, to concentrate the mind. Um, And, you know, you can get caught in, in these loops that don't go anywhere, and they just totally overwhelm our energy. But handling them is tricky. And I, I really like to talk about this a lot, because, uh, because of the tendency of the unawakened mind to uh, pounce on dukkha, basically. It's pouncing on things that are painful, you know. But it, it, it's tricky because you, you just can't say that every time the mind is leaning that it's caught in sense-desire and you can 't say that every time it 's moving away that it 's caught in aversion or 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 doubt or restlessness you know, and you can 't say that every time it's uh, it doesn 't appear to have uh, a lot of energy in it that uh, or it 's not active you know the mind is quiet and not active you can't you can 't say that that is sloth necessarily the, the, this is why um, you, we really have to um, have this total, unabashed innocence, uh, this attitude towards what's arising that uh, piques our interest and looks, and doesn't have any preconceived notions about what it is that we're looking at, doesn't have any preconceived notions about ourselves for um, having these various states. I don't know about you, but that, to me, that's what practice is all about, more than anything, is trying to find out what it's like to be with what's happening in that way—it's <laughs> hard one. <laughs> you, 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 I don't know about you, but it certainly has taken me. It takes me years, and there's certain patterns I can't do that with yet. You know, it just—I I shouldn't be this way. There should be some other way. You know, that gets in there before I can get any footing in relation to it. So that's that's our tendency is to to say it shouldn't be, and uh, we really have to see how much this disempowers us in this process of waking up so just trying to get in touch with the um, the energy behind the the movement of the mind and and as a practitioner, try not to be too quick to to call things something that is uh, you know, got some yucky name to it, you know... <laughs> so, so that we don't give rise to this uh, attitude that it has to be gotten rid of. And I say this unequivocally, you do not need to get rid of the hindrances. You, you, we need to see them. We need to feel them. We need to learn through direct experience uh, what, what patterns and habits of mind uh, support liberation, and which ones don't. I mean, and I, I think, you know, the Buddha would agree, don't take his word for it, he would say. You know, find out for yourself that um, these states, which states serve and which states don't. Because that's the only way that uh, we'll, we'll get free of them. So just be willing to notice and uh, uh, hold our in them even if if it takes a 3 month retreat you know to see the craziness in the mind around things that we find pleasant you know if it takes 9 months of not sitting to to see in the mind that you're meditating for superficial reasons you know that, that that's good that's time well spent yeah this kind of thing okay so I hope this is helpful. Yeah. <coughs> Let's just sit for a minute. We- Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.